Jazz is considered a uniquely American art form. Like so much of modern music, it was born out of the songs of black Southerners. And it was also born from a collision of cultures that really could have only taken place in New Orleans at that time. French sounds, Spanish sounds, African sounds coming together to make something new. And the new Netflix show, The Eddie, is born out of a similar collision of cultures. Set in a Parisian nightclub, the show centers on a jazz musician, club owner, and producer, Elliot Udo, portrayed by Andre Holland. The band is made up by people from all over Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, the United States, coming together to make music. And the show itself was put together by artists from around the world at the top of their game, including Holland and Damien Chazelle. You may remember both of them from the Moonlight and La La Land award circuit from a few years ago. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I am talking with Andre Holland, one of the most talented and thoughtful actors in the business, and a native of Bessemer, Alabama. We discuss his new show, as well as how the South shaped him as an artist, his mission to restore a movie palace in his hometown, James Baldwin, baseball, and hey, we may even break a little news later on in the show about some projects that he has in the works. So settle in and listen to The Reckon Interview. Andre Holland, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here. You have a new show out on Netflix called The Eddie. And it's a it's a really beautiful show. I binged the whole thing this weekend, set in a Paris jazz club today uh, in, in modern times. And I guess it's a side of Paris that most American film goers and, and TV watchers aren't used to seeing. I, I don't think that there's a shot of the uh, Eiffel Tower anywhere in the show. <laughs> it's this really intimate character study of you who are a successful musician that seems to be kind of running from from some demons stateside and this group of musicians that you've put together in this club in Paris. What was it about this script that got you interested in getting on board early on? I mean, first of all, Damien Chazelle directed the first two episodes of The Eight. He and I met, you know, several years back when we were doing the sort of La La Land Moonlight press tours. And so, you know, I really liked his work. And so I knew I wanted to work with him at some point. And then this script came along. And for me, I, I think the thing I really connected with was, number one, this, this relationship between Elliot and his daughter. I mean, it's obviously very fraught and a difficult relationship, but that was interesting to me. Also, it's, it's so much about the creative process, right? And this man who is this incredible creative, who's also dealing with, when we find him, an enormous amount of grief. And that grief has got him stuck in this destructive pattern. And so at the moment the script came along, it really resonated with me because I too was dealing with some struggles in my creative life. And then obviously getting to do a show in Paris and about jazz was, you know, not a bad deal either. It's, you know, shooting six months in France over the summer was was pretty beautiful. Yeah, there are, there are worse ways to spend a summer. Yeah. Like you mentioned, you know, it, it's being billed as kind of the Damien Chazelle, uh, you know, the, the mashup of the director of La La Land and a star of Moonlight. But as I was looking at the crew that's involved, it's really just this collection of incredible filmmakers from the UK and France and Morocco. And so in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm not a jazz expert, but it, it feels kind of like jazz in and of itself, where you have a lot of people at the really at the top of their game. I've heard you kind of describe it before as some ordered chaos. Damien Chazelle is known as being a very rigid filmmaker, but it sounds like a lot of it was improvised in terms of the, the music, but also on set. And even getting down to like the granular level of the structure of the series, you know, each band member kind of gets a solo and it ties back into the overall jazz of the work itself. 
what was that creative process like compared to say, you know, working with, with Soderbergh on High Flying Bird? It was a lot like jazz. What you described, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Damien directed the first two episodes. He oversaw all of the episodes. He kind of set the tone and the, and the look of the show. The other filmmakers, as you said, are all sort of auteurs in their own right. And uh, we all wanted them to have the freedom to do what they wanted to do you know, within the sort of framework that Damien established. So it was an interesting process and not always an easy one because every director who comes in wants to sort of put their stamp on it, right? In this case, one of the things I was most excited about with the show was the fact that two of our directors were women, both women of color, of both of Moroccan descent, as it turned out. And I was interested to see what that would be like. You know, and sometimes, you know, the language barrier got in the way a bit at times. So that added another sort of layer of challenge. But at the same time, I think those Layla and Huda, those two women being given the freedom to do what they wanted to do, really allowed each of the two, each of the four blocks, the two episode blocks to really have their own sort of feel. Yeah. I've been watching this Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance lately, and I, I was I'm obsessed with it, but I was thinking about the Bulls uh, and the way that you know, Jordan has a great game and he's is the leader. He's the one who sort of sets the tone. And then there are games when Scottie Pippen steps forward and, you know, it's his game and, and everyone sort of makes way for that. And in a way, it felt like that, right? Like it is a sort of ordered chaos and there's a lot of trust in, in more or less all of the players involved. So at any, at any moment, you know, any one person can emerge and, and sort of um, have a great game. And I think that's the way they designed the series. And, and I think that's what more or less happened. I don't know how many different languages were spoken on set, there's a particularly moving moment where you are giving a speech at a funeral. And I think in, over the course of that speech, I think you change language two or three times. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of leaps are you making in your head as you are jumping from language to language? It's tough, man. I won't lie. It's really, really tough. In that, in that case, it was, it was challenging, but it was easier because it was a, you know, a, a speech, a monologue that I was giving. So mm-hmm. I had a bit more control over it. When I was doing scenes with Leila Bekti, for example, when we would, the scene might be written on the page as being, you know, starting in English and then switching to French or, or vice versa. But on the day, she's such a fantastic actress. On the day, she might, you know, want to improvise certain things in French or change the tone of a line or even the words of a line. And so for me, I mean, I've studied French, but I'm not good enough to really pick up tone, <laughs> um, especially <laughs> right. when it's like being improvised. So those, those were really challenging. They kind of like switch your brain back and forth between languages. The Arabic, the scene that you're talking about with the funeral was a tricky one because it's quite an emotional scene. And when you're rehearsing in a dialect or in a different language, it's one thing to learn it when you're in a you know, peaceful state. But then when you sort of turn the emotion on and the feeling on, then you're in a room full of people who actually speak that language it's really easy to to make mistakes. So it's a weird, weird sensation. But in the end, like that became one of my favorite scenes, I think. Because again, like for me, it's all about like how to connect the language to the acting. And in that moment, what was important is that I be able, my character be able to communicate to Farid's family in the language. It was a matter of, of like really respecting and honoring them. And then also to the other people in the room for whom French is their first language. And I, yeah, I wanted us to add in a bit of stuff they you know, like the line I say, I think is Farid always in French. Farid always told me to uh, Farid, il me disait toujours de travailler mon français parce qu'un jour j'en aurai vraiment besoin. Farid always told me to practice my French because one day I was going to need it. <laughs> right. But you kind of make a joke of it. You yeah. know what I mean? You take a bit of the edge off. But uh, but it was a challenge, man. I won't lie. That was probably the hardest part. It paid off. That scene in particular has stuck with me after watching it. There's another scene 
And I have a hunch. Uh, I know that as a producer, you you got to play a role in kind of shaping your character and shaping some of the story. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to guess that the inclusion of the price of the ticket was was your idea. Is that is that something you brought to the? She's right up there on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was actually it was me and Amanda, and okay. we had a another one of our writers who who, uh, who joined us late in the game, a, a gentleman named Philip Howes, who came in and yeah, together I think Amanda and I were both feeling like we wanted something more culturally specific and resonant. We wanted like it was really important to Amanda, for example, the journey that she goes on with her hair, and she plays your daughter yeah. exactly. And so when we find her, she's confused and angry and acting out in all sorts of ways. And I think what we come to understand is that she's really struggling to find her own identity and that she needs her father in order to unlock some things for her. And a lot of that stuff she's struggling with is about her culture and uh, lack of knowledge about her culture. And I think in some ways, Elliot is on a similar trajectory in that he's in search of unlocking himself from this prison that he's, he's locked himself in. And the key to that for him is about reconnecting to culture, I believe. So it made sense that the two of them would, that that would be a ground that they could meet on. And this book, this collection of essays by Baldwin is a favorite of yours. Yeah, personal favorite. That's probably my favorite all time. It's on the top shelf up here at home. And, and uh, yeah, I love it. His writing always feels urgent and, and timely, but I think particularly, you know, right now in kind of the conversation around Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, disproportionate impact on, on Black Americans uh, right now with, with the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, you know, I, I know that you... I believe you also carried it around when you were working on Jitney, the August Wilson play, from from what I've read in an interview. Mm. You know, what what is it about his work that resonated with you and when did it start kind of clicking for you? Yeah, I first discovered him when I was in college and I discovered him through a play, The Amen Corner, Mm -hmm. which I was in school and, you know, a lot of the plays and work that we were doing was, you know, Shakespeare and Chekhov and Ibsen and, you know, all this sort of classics. And I never really found myself feeling free within those mm-hmm. great works. And in my effort to try and find material that I felt like really spoke directly to my experience, I bumped into this play and it just it broke my heart. And so I went down the rabbit hole, like so many other people, and started reading more and more. You know, so much of what, he, what he's written feels like it could have been written mm-hmm. tomorrow. One of my favorite quotes of his is one that people often say, but it's, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all of the time. When I think about the Aubrey case, and you know, as you say, the way that Black people are being impacted by this COVID thing, is that feels prescient and as true now as it ever had. So yeah, I think Baldwin for me has always been kind of a guiding force in my life and in the choices that I make. You know, I've heard some other Black artists talk about, you know, traveling abroad. When you are an African-American in the United States, and obviously I'm, I'm white, so I, I'm sorry if I'm projecting anything, but, mm-hmm. but the, you know, a lot of mainstream and, and white Americans in particular kind of latch on to, to African before American. But when you're an African-American in, in Paris, you know, you're an American and then, you know, black is sort of secondary. Was there any sense, did you feel any kind of sense that you were treated differently in, in Paris versus New York versus Bessemer? Um, this time around, I don't think I noticed it as much when I first went to Paris, um, I first went to Europe in college. I remember there being, I was in London at the time and I remember walking down the street with a friend of mine who was a tall, very handsome white dude, who was one of my good friends. And I was so accustomed to like watching him get attention from people, right? Because of the way that he presented. And 
and yeah, it's a small thing, but there was this one day we were walking down, down uh, Oxford Street and I remember these two women stopped us and said, oh, you look really handsome today. And I thought to myself, yeah, he does, doesn't he? You know, he's nice. Here we go again. <laughs> and and then I realized that they actually were talking to me. Oh, and it's a, such a small, insignificant thing. But I remember walking away and almost wanting to cry because it was one of the first times that I felt like people were seeing me as Andre first, you know, as just a human being first and not. Yeah. And, and not in any other way. Yeah. That really stuck with me. They really, really stuck with me. And I, but this, but to answer your question, this time around in Paris, I didn't really, I didn't really feel that. And that maybe because I've sort of grown into myself a little bit more now than I, than I was. So. You grew up in the South and your character in, in the show owns a jazz club. You in real life have recently purchased a, a theater in your hometown of Bessemer, Alabama. Was there any kind of resonance with you as a character, uh, as somebody who is newly owning a, uh, a theater in the South? I mean, so, so much of who I am is, has been shaped by having grown up in the South in Alabama. Like when I was thinking about this part, you know, I'm not a jazz connoisseur either, but I grew up with listening to, to blues music, a lot of gospel, soul music. And um, obviously those forms have, you know, influenced jazz in an, in an enormous way. But to answer your question, I think so much of what Elliot's journey is about, and maybe what the journey of this music is about, is about reconnecting to the origins, to the roots, mm -hmm. right? When we were on set and, and the band would be playing around with things and you hear a cat from Cuba, Damien, you know, playing bass, you know, double bass and, you know, Joey coming from Haiti and, you know, people from all these different parts of the culture coming together and yet the sounds are, are so similar, you know what I mean? And I'm listening to them play and I'm like, man, that sounds like a little bit like church, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So I think for me, this theater is in a way me coming full circle because yeah, every choice I make in terms of parts I take on or the way I play characters, I think is rooted in like me having grown up in Alabama and I want to honor where I'm from, honor my family. I want to represent the, you know, the South and my family and my culture in a way that feels true and authentic. And it only makes sense to me that part of me honoring them in that way is about creating an institution, creating a, a, a place for other young people and people in the community to gather and to engage around art and to share art and to make art. So that for me is what the theater is about. It's really important to me. So hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get it open soon. Well, let's talk a little bit about the theater itself called the Lincoln Theater, and it's in downtown Bessemer. And my understanding is that it was a black movie house back in the Jim Crow era. Has it ever been an operation in, in your lifetime? Do you have any memories of it as a... No, I don't have any memories of it, but my parents do and my uncles and aunts do. So oh, really? Yeah, everybody in Bessemer, if you say the Lincoln Theater, everybody knows it. They instantly come up with, oh, I had my first date at the Lincoln. I remember I had my first kiss, you know. There was a, there was a man who lived in Bessemer. We called him uh, Steering Wheel Joe. That's not his real name. Of course. I think his real name was Joe Craig, but he was this, you know, really handsome brother and he'd walk around Bessemer in a in a suit. And people from Bessemer would know if you say steering wheel Joe, but he, he'd walk around with a suit on and he'd carry a steering wheel and he'd walk along the side of the road and kind of make these car noises <laughs> and walk up and down the streets. And one is one woman I met when we were, you know, working on the theater. She said, you know, I remember when Joe, steering wheel Joe used to take me and my friends to the Lincoln to see movies. And I said, what do you, I said, what do you mean he used to take you to the movie? He said, well, he would take me in his car. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, she went on to tell me that they would all get together and get in the car, you know, quote unquote, and walk down the road with Joe, driving him to the Lincoln, you know. So there's uh -huh. so many people have so many memories uh, of the place, even though it wasn't around in, in my lifetime. 
operational in my lifetime, it's important to me to, to bring it back to life. When did you decide you wanted to buy it? It was probably about three years ago, maybe four years ago now. I was home and the barbershop that I used to go to when I was a kid was right next door to the Lincoln. And then my cousins, my older cousins, owned a barbecue pit, barbecue restaurant a couple doors down from the Lincoln. My dad used to get his shoes shined at the shoe shine parlor right there on down the street. It was like the hub, right? That block. And then one, yeah, I was home one day and I saw, I was in the barbershop and my dad got his haircut and he said, uh, you know, the barber just told me that they're trying to sell the Lincoln Theater next door. The, you know, the, the person who owned it passed away and the people want to get rid of it. And so I got a phone number and made a few phone calls. And, and when I went in and saw it, as soon as I walked in the doors, I was like, oh yeah, I want to do this. Because it, it looked like somebody just walked away and closed the doors and left. I mean, all, the movie reels were still in there. The oh, old cool. projectors were there. The seats were there. There were old, like, you know, posters, advertisements that were inside the theater. It was really beautiful and, and powerful. Coming up after the break, Andre and I discuss what projects he has in the works and the possibility that we'll see a sequel to one of his most acclaimed films. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, these are the stories of the people seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. I've been doing this 40 years. I bet I've fired five people in my entire life. And, you know, we're in the process of laying off hundreds of people. And I can tell you that's as tough as anything we've ever done. A lot of us don't have health insurance. A lot of us don't have sick days. You can't collect unemployment when shows cancel. Everyone is worried. Everyone is tense. Everyone is concerned. I have a business that I cannot even run. For two months now, I've been closed. I have five employees. They keep asking me when we're gonna reopen and I don't know yet. I'm an optimistic guy. And, and I think that my group is smart enough and hardworking enough and kind enough to get us through this. Whatever they throw at us. And, and that's certainly my hope. Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing from Bessemer that came to mind while watching the Eddie was Gip's Place. I don't know if you ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Gip, man. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, yeah. And working class, uh, white and black people, as well as like senators and politicians and rich people all kind of congregating in his backyard around music. Um, that scene at the at the very end of the show where you all kind of pile out into the streets playing music took me back to the feelings of being at, at Gibbs Place. Yeah. So if you grew up in Bessemer, does that mean that you come from a, a steel family? Is that? Yeah, big time. My mother worked at U.S. Steel for okay. 36 years. My uh, Several of my uncles worked there. My uh, grandfather was at Pullman for, you know, years. Other family members, U.S. Pipe. Yeah, big time, big time steel family. And you went to John Carroll High School, Crosstown. Yeah, yeah. First I went to the, uh, Shades Valley RLC, which I think now they call the IB school. Uh -huh. And then I transferred to John Carroll. And you were involved with what was called Summerfest Theater at the time, now Red Mountain Theater yeah. Company. Yep. Uh, name is Hatcher. <laughs> at some point, you know, acting stopped being a hobby and started being a job and, and a vocation for you. Did that happen through high school? Did that happen in college? You know, when my mother started me doing stuff, like I said, at, at Summerfest in Town and Gown when I was young. And I enjoyed it, but I never thought of it as being something I'd do. 
you know, throughout my life. And then when I got in high school, I really loved baseball and wanted to be a baseball player. You know, I thought I would have a chance of playing baseball in college, but that for a variety of reasons fell apart. And it was a drama teacher I had in high school, Mr. Revel, Daryl Revel, who sat me down one day and said, well, what are your plans? You know, have you thought about studying theater in, in college? And I didn't know that that was a thing that people could do in college. He said, well, I went to Florida State. They had a great program when I was there. You should check it out. So I went home and told my parents and my mom said, well, let's go see it. So we started up the van, drove to Alabama, drove to Florida and looked around. And, and that's how that decision got made. And it wasn't until probably halfway through college when I started to think more seriously about what would it be like to actually make a career of this? And even then, I didn't know how to do that, where to start. I didn't know anything. Showed up in New York, got an apartment with a friend of mine from college, started auditioning, knocking on doors, wasn't getting anywhere. I was a telemarketer that was killing me. <laughs> I was working at uh, I was working at uh, the Mets Stadium, like handing out free stuff or going on the like, subway entrances, handing out free flyers to different restaurants and things. And and then one day, my roommate at the time got uh, in the mail a brochure from Yale, Yale School of Drama. And I remember opening and saying, "Well, Kathleen, what's this? What's this Yale School of Drama thing?" And she said, "Well, it's a master's program I'm applying to, and there are a lot of master's programs out there, and you can you know apply and." They, they really can help you to, you know, get better. And so I applied on the whim to Yale and NYU and, and then ended up getting in and getting a scholarship to go. And then I figured I better make this a profession. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's cool. And you've, you've had the chance to shoot at least two films partially in Alabama playing, mm -hmm. you know, pivotal people in Southern history and American history. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Young in, uh, in Selma obviously, and Wendell Smith in 42. Mm -hmm. Did doing those films, you know, did that change your understanding of Birmingham history, of, of Southern history? It really did. It's amazing the thing that you just take for granted, you know. When we did 42, I mean, I grew up playing baseball. I never knew how important Rick Wood Field really is, you know. It's the oldest baseball field in the country. I mean, everybody from, obviously, Willie Mays to Satchel Paige, to all of them have played on that field at some point in time. There's a church nearby that I used to, my cousins go to that I used to visit occasionally. And it's pastor by a man named Reverend Greeson, who still to this day is pastoring at this church. He was a Negro, former Negro League baseball player. That's cool. Yeah. And like, as I'm doing my research for 42, I'm reading these books, you know, about the Negro Leagues and these names are popping up. They're talking about Birmingham. And, and I see in there, you know, Greeson's name. I'm like, oh my God, this is, it's unbelievable, you know. So yeah, it taught me, it taught me so much, man, and gave me such an appreciation for Birmingham and for the South in general. It's like a living museum, you know, and I now encourage everybody that I meet to come down to the South and everybody who does come, they're all blown away by it. Cause I think they all have this image in their minds that it's dark, scary place and it's, you know, stuck in time and nothing's happening down there. But man, there's so much going on musically, artistically. I mean, so much to learn. One of the best days I think of the whole thing was when we were doing when we were doing Selma, we were actually shooting in Montgomery or in Selma at the time. And several people in the cast, Tessa Thompson and Common and a few other people said, oh, man, wouldn't it be nice to go check out Birmingham? And I didn't really know them that well at the time. But I was like, well, if y'all want to go, I'd be happy to show you. And so I ended up putting them all in the car and we drove up to Birmingham. And I took them down to Avondale. We had lunch. I took them to Kelly Ingram Park and 16th Street Church, and Rickwood Field and just the whole city. And and seeing them get excited about it, it made me fall in love with the city all over again. Yeah. Every time that I'm showing people the city that, that I kind of fall in love with it and want to move move back in, into it. And I mean, you know, that that's coming from <laughs> that's coming from the from the wrong side of uh things historically in terms of but you know, just like studying that and looking at how much the, the country and, and the world changed from 
from what happened in Birmingham. And even mm-hmm. just like trying to get like uh, talking about Rickwood Field, you know, just kind of the weird accidents of history about Bull Connor being, you know, calling games for the Negro League before he even got introduced into politics. And then obviously being such a racist mm-hmm. piece of shit, <laughs> but just like the, the way that it all kind of weaves together uh, and, and that sports and, and arts play a role. I mean, you know, Nat King Cole coming out of Montgomery and I guess the more time I spend down here, the more I latch on to trying to understand all the different cultures and history that, that make up the region. Yeah. There's another scene in High Flying Bird where you give a book to another character as well. That seems to be a common uh, occurrence for you. And that one, it is yeah. The Revolt of the Black Athlete by Harry Edwards. Uh, mm-hmm. it, in fact, it's the same basic setup. It's in a manila envelope. You you give it to, to a character that you care about and they open it near the end. Yeah. There's a There's a line from that movie that's been sticking out to me a lot recently. You talk about the game above the game. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you think that 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 character, Ray Burke, would be handling the the shutdown of all the sports leagues right now. I don't know if Mm. athletes are being paid at the moment. I don't really know how how that league works. But in the the movie, High Flying Bird, for, for those of you who are listening who haven't watched it, you are trying to help your clients, your sports agent, navigate a NBA lockout. What do you make of the current sports situation? And obviously there's a lot of money at stake, but there's also players' real lives at stake in terms of if they return too too early. In my imagination, I think Ray would, first of all, want to make sure that his clients are good, right? That everybody's taken care of financially, everybody's fine, you know, families are okay and health-wise. Now, once that was done, I think that he would probably be using this as an opportunity to try and further level the playing field. For me, so much of what the book is about and what we wanted the movie to be about is this balance of power, labor and management, who gets to be the one to call the shots. And it's funny you bring that up because the call I was on earlier and I have a thing later today to talk about this this very thing. We're working on a sequel to the film. Oh, cool. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. I haven't told anybody that, but working on that. So yeah, I think hopefully uh, once we get this made, We'll be able to. I'll be able to answer that question with a ninety-minute movie. That's great! I'm, I'm very excited yeah. about that. Will, will that be with Soderbergh? He's a part of it. I'm not sure if he's going to direct it or not, but we're definitely in conversations about it. And, and I think all along, you know, very early on, once we before we even like released Hot, the High Flying Bird, we we sort of knew we wanted. We, there was more to do, more to say, and that the idea that we just wanted to plant the seed with High Flying Bird, but this next thing will actually be more all-encompassing, I think, and and even better. I hope. Well, y'all have had a uh, a fruitful friendship and working relationship. Um, High Flying Bird takes place in New York, obviously, but uh, one of the characters played at LSU. I think you referenced seeing your cousin play in Jacksonville. There's definitely Southern influences creeping in into that film. And Steven Soderbergh is from Louisiana, I believe. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you connect with? I mean, I, just in kind of looking into your background, I know you're also friends with Brian Tyree Henry and Sterling K. Brown. And you know, a lot of these people come out of North Carolina, Missouri, you know, parts of the South. Is that something that you have found kinship with them in? Or is that just kind of lucky coincidence? It, it's funny. It might be lucky coincidence. I don't know. But I, I definitely feel a kinship. And we the thing is that we bond over Terrell McCraney, too. I mean, he's from Florida, but... Yeah. We count very Florida. Southern. We count. We'll, we'll, for today, we'll count Florida. <laughs> uh, Barry Jenkins is Florida, too, I think. Barry Jenkins is Florida. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
there is a certain like Southern sensibility that we do share, I think, and a sense of humor that we understand about each other and a way of thinking about the world. I mean, religion played a big part of my life growing up as it did for Terrell and a lot of my friends, a lot of other people that you mentioned. And so I think there's a certain grace that they all have, a generosity of spirit that all of those people have, a curiosity about the world, a boldness to try things and a gratitude, you know, that we're, we're really gracious people and, and grateful for the opportunities that we have, truly grateful for those opportunities. Uh, and I think those are things that the South instilled in me and all of us. So, yeah, I don't know that I set out to make all these Southern friends. No, but, it just happened. Yeah. <laughs> we found each other. That's yeah. cool. Man, I'm, I'm still kind of dazed by you saying there's going to be a high-flying bird sequel. That's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and, and in talking about the game above the game, that metaphor just kind of, or I mean, it's not even a metaphor, it's reality in, in, in the film, but feels like it applies to so much right now. You know, whether it's even the economy versus healthcare conversation that we're happening, you know, the stock market's up while while record job loss is down. What is happening right now in, in your industry? You know, obviously a lot of production has been shut down. A lot of the uh, a lot of the big studios, you know, they're they're struggling. There's the fight happening with movie theaters and um, video on demand. Is that something that's creeping into your life at all? Or are you kind of focused on just finding your next script? Yeah, I'm sort of focused on taking care of, you know, just like health and community and friends and all of that stuff first, trying to do some volunteer work and just stay engaged, you know what I mean? Stay, keep it all in perspective. I think when, when I do think about the industry, one thing good that's coming out of it is it seems as though creators, like writers and actors are becoming a bit more central again. I mean, it seems like people are really clamoring for new content and new ideas. And this Zoom format uh, seems to be the only thing available to us. And so, you know, we're more reliant on people who have really good ideas or interesting ideas. So I think that's exciting. I think the work, the art that's going to come out of this will will probably be meaningful and, and deep. Mm-hmm. I'm not so up on the like studios arguing and all of that stuff. And I'm not really, yeah, I'm not really focused on that at the moment, to be honest with you. I'm trying to make my, I have a bunch of things I'm trying to create and work on. And so we're just trying to use this time to cover some ground in that respect. And and just take care of family and stuff, man. Well, you've had the chance to work with, I mean, a lot of different talented creators and, and directors. Ava DuVernay, we already mentioned mm-hmm. Soderbergh. I think one of your first movies was Spike Lee, mm-hmm. Barry Jenkins, Ryan Murphy. What have you taken away from them? I mean, can we anticipate that you're you're going to work with any of them again in the near future? It's interesting to hear you say that because you're right. I've been so lucky to work with some pretty, pretty dope people. Well, I, I don't know that it's lucky. I mean, it's clearly <laughs> something they keep working with you. Ava DuVernay's cast well, you twice. You know, <laughs> I think that there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot about you that they're latching on to. Well, that's sweet to hear, man. I appreciate that. And I, I hope you're right. And hope we get to do much more of it. Uh, yeah, Stephen and I have a thing that we're working on that we're like developing together. Barry and I actually have a thing that we've been working on together, which I'm really excited about. You know, Ava and I are good friends, and so we're constantly in contact, and and I'm, like, there for whatever she, you know, if she ever calls my name and, and wants me to be a part of something, I'm, I'm down for that. So much of it for me is, you know, to answer your question about what I've taken from them, is it's just it's so important to work with good people. You know what I mean? Ava, just to speak about her, is, like, one of the kindest people that I think I've ever met in my life. I mean, in addition to being so so talented and driven and gifted and you know she's also really 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 kind and creates an environment on set that just allows everybody room to flourish and that's not an easy thing to do i say the same for steven he's when we first started working on the nick together i 
nobody knew who I was or, you know what I mean? I was just a dude, an actor in his show, you know what I'm saying? And yet when I went to speak to him and share with him some of these ideas I had about things I wanted to make or produce or questions even that I had about how he's setting up these shots or why this lens and not that lens, he was so willing to share that information with me. And that's not something that people always do. So I'm so grateful to him for, you know, for making space for me because he didn't have to do it, but he did. So I think all of those people that you named and, and others I've just has just confirmed for me, I think that like the way my parents brought me up is like the way to be, you know, to treat people right, you know, treat them like you want to be treated, to try to be honest and be, you know, have some integrity about what you're doing to get to do your best uh, whenever you do have an opportunity. And yeah, I think that, that that's what I have seen in all of those, all of those people that you mentioned. And, uh, what books should we expect in your next projects? What are you What are you reading these days? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know it, it's funny. Like I'm a, I go through these. So I'm not. I'm a person who like I rarely am like just reading one thing because mm-hmm. I'll read a little bit and then I'll get distracted or I'll get bored or I'll just need stuff and then I'll pick up something else. So I'm usually reading like three or four things at the same time, but kind of slowly because I, you know, I, I'm slow with it. But I'm reading right now this old novel called um, The Lord of Dark Places, which was recommended to me by a friend. I'm reading a nonfiction book called Scenes of Subjection. It's Idea Hartman, which is a really powerful, difficult work right here on the desk. It's Her Body and Other Parties, which was also recommended to me by a friend. And then I'm reading Mozart's Letters, the book of letters by Mozart, from oh, cool. Mozart. So kind of a weird you know, hodgepodge of things. Yeah, you got and then like a variety of scripts. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was a lot of fun. This was great, man. Thank you for the time and thank you for the work you're doing and for allowing me space to speak and to be heard, man. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much to Andre Holland for his time. You can find his new show, The Eddie, on Netflix. And you should make time to watch High Flying Bird on Netflix as well. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. We recorded the conversation via Zoom, and it was produced and edited by Steph Colburn at Edit Audio. If you like Reckon, follow us everywhere on social media and sign up for our newsletter. Oh, and if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. And hey, if you're feeling generous, leave us a five-star review, and that'll help us spread these great stories from the South. And until next week, be well.